Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem, were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. <clears throat> and he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at all those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So, <clears throat> forgive the post-nasal drip, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're going to have to listen to it. Same verses as last week, of course, but last week we covered the inside out of this Markin sandwich, which is what scholars call Mark's habit of sticking one story inside of another related story. Now, whereas last week we covered the inside, the Beelzebul controversy, um, the the meat of his, um, yeah, it's it's his being rejected and accused by the Jerusalem envoys. This week we're going to cover the bread, which is very similar in that we will see his family doing roughly the same exact thing to him. <clears throat> now, this teaching is going to be somewhat of a smorgasbord of, fic of kinship versus fictive kinship, honor and shame, insiders versus outsiders, all that jazz. Of course, I've written books about the first and second of those topics, but I don't think I've ever really taught about the insiders and outsiders in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, so this this part should be fun. And I'm also going to tie it to the cross at the very end, which means, if you recall, that I will undoubtedly start crying because I've never been able to talk about the passion of our Savior without breaking down. Um, so if you'd like to hear women crying, best you turn the channel off right now. It it just is what it is. Um, if, on the other hand, you hate me and love to hear me crying, or know other people who would love to hear me crying, call them and let them know. Yeah. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. 
If you prefer written material, <clears throat> I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, which is called Context for Kids. I think mostly adults read it, though. <laughs> And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. All scripture this week um, comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript of part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. And we're not going to have... We're, I'm going to keep the rabbit trails down to a minimum because I, I have more material for this one than I have for most. All right, let's start out in verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So Yeshua and his disciples have been away preaching, and he returns home. Where is home? The uh, the house of Peter's mother-in-law, the home base they were using originally in Capernaum, and or perhaps he has his own place by the time you know this has happened. But we don't know. There were rentals available. I mean, I know that sounds silly, but you, know, you could rent a house. We have two important words in use here. Last week we had Okos and Okia pairing home and house. And this week we're going to add the word crowd, Oklos. We see the crowds referenced a lot, but I don't often mention them. This week I mention them because it's important to know the audience that this was being played out for. Throughout all the Gospels, you have named characters unnamed characters, named groups, and the crowd. The crowd serves as an important backdrop. How they're responding and what they're doing in reaction to Yeshua's preaching, his deeds, his bold claims. So far, we've seen them amazed and astonished. That's their prime attitude toward Yeshua. They hunt him down when he retreats to solitude. They press in and demand healings, deliverance, and miracles no matter where he is or what he's doing. And if you don't feel that's a problem, imagine needing to go outside to go to the bathroom. Greco-Roman cities had public latrines, and so I do assume that Capernaum might have had them as well. There were certainly public toilets atop the Temple Mount, but, you know, they were, yeah, public, okay? <laughs> Do you think they would leave him alone there when they wouldn't even allow him to eat in the house where he was staying? The crowd is demanding, always wanting to touch him. Sometimes he had to retreat to the shoreline and get in a boat just so they can keep their distance. Or he can keep his distance from them. This picture isn't uh, that much different than the paparazzi crowding in around someone famous hoping to get a money shot. I also imagine that this crowd would be very noisy, making it difficult to preach and teach. And as I've stated on many occasions, their needs were desperate. But they come across more like beasts than people. 
And I'm not speaking in order to make them seem inhuman. You know, quite the contrary. Each one in the crowd was a Jewish man, woman, or child who was living under terrible oppression and probably poverty and with a level of need and sickness that we just can't imagine. They were, as Yeshua says elsewhere, like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, I want you to imagine if Super Bowl fans were permitted to go down on the field after their team won the game. Imagine them mobbing the MVP, just hoping to touch him or to be able to see him up close or say something to him. And now, imagine the MVP could heal their kid of cancer. So, I don't judge these people, all right? My heart aches for them, even if their behavior frustrates me because they have largely been missing the message up to this point. Will this change? Let's keep reading to find out. Verse 21. And when his family heard it, Yeshua's family, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. When his family heard what? That he'd created such a spectacle in Capernaum? That he was causing such a fuss? That the house he was in found itself constantly mobbed? That he was allowing this to happen to the point that there might be riots and Herodian intervention? Whatever it was that they heard, they had to be very fearful right now. For the safety of their family, honor, you know, indeed, you know, honor is so important in those times that they had to be thinking he was crazy in order to risk the reputation of their entire family for generations to come. Okay, now let's do a crash course on honor and shame here. So we can see the dilemma of Yeshua's family and try to see this from their side. Remember, they have no narrator. They don't know the end of the story, and we can't treat them as though they do. First, I want you to know that Mark will not be in charge of... Or Mary, sorry, Mary will not be in charge of this rescue mission. Yeshua's brothers will be in charge. I mentioned this last week briefly. We learn their identity in Matthew uh, chapter 13, uh, verses 55 and 56, and later in Mark 6 on his ill-fated preaching mission to his hometown in Nazareth. So they say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where, did, where then did this man get all these things? So in Hebrew, his brothers would be named Yaakov, which is um, translated as Jacob into the English and the, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. Yosef, Joseph, Shimon, Simon, and Yehuda, Judah which here has been Hellenized uh, to make it masculine as names ending with an A sound were feminine in Greco-Roman culture, which is why we get Yeshua changed to um, eventually have an S sound at the end. And because it would look shameful in Greek. So, and he has sisters, but they were no doubt married off by the time that Yeshua's 30 and all his brothers likely are grown and gainfully employed with families of their own. I know that the Catholics like to like make Mary out to be a perpetual virgin. 
but that would have been incredibly shameful to her and proof to her neighbors that she was an adulteress. I'm serious. However, having five sons and at least two daughters would put her in the biblical sweet spot of the number seven and would be seen as symbolic of having God's favor. All, uh, although sex as a reality became shameful just a few hundred years ago in the Western world, it, it was not so uh, in biblical times. It, uh, it was a way to produce children, period. A fertile woman was a proud woman who was honoring her husband and her entire family. No blushing required. It was only the barren woman who was subjected to shame. But it was the job, job number one of these sons. Um, heck, you know, traditionally it would have been the number one job of Yeshua himself to protect and promote the family honor. And we might think, well, he's certainly popular. Yes, he was popular, but with all the wrong people. People like them. Not people who were wealthy and powerful and who had high honor themselves. Honor in ancient times and two-thirds of the world today had nothing to do with an internalized moral code. It was all about renown, fame, a reputation for being excellent, status, that sort of thing. You could be a low-down, dirty skunk and still have high status and be respected. We live differently now in part because Yeshua changed the way that we perceive what makes a man excellent. We look at his integrity and understand that a beggar can have more integrity than a king. They saw a beggar, on the other hand, and their understanding was that the beggar was an unworthy, shameful out who was obviously cursed by God and with good reason, and so was his family. I hope you can understand how important the Beatitudes were and are in, in, in combating these attitudes and why the Torah tells us to support the vulnerable, the people whom society was shaming. But what Yeshua's brothers knew was that Yeshua was that what Yeshua was doing was extremely dangerous. He was walking on a knife's edge. The only thing was, if he fell, then they would all get cut to shreds. They would be irrevocably shamed and ruined for generations to come. Potentially, no one would want to do business with them, leading to their starvation and ruin, and especially as Joseph, their father, had just been a lowly artisan which was a very low social class of labor, not like today where, you know, you pay the carpenter to make your cabinets and cost an arm and a leg, you know. <laughs> and so that's where they were as well, day laborers, right? Now Yeshua's 30, and so his brothers are all easily in their 20s and married with families already of their own. As firstborn, it would have been considered Yeshua's job and duty to care for his mother Miriam Mary if Joseph were alive he would be Joseph would be leading this expedition as patriarch just so you know so Joseph would have been there but Joseph's not there so Joseph's dead 
And yet he wasn't doing it, okay? Yeshua wasn't doing his job here. Socially, leaving that task to his brothers was already very embarrassing for the family. What does Matthew 19.29 say about this? And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So this isn't just talking about fin financial ruin, but personal shame. To leave the family to defend for themselves was to shame oneself terribly, and them as well. People wouldn't look kindly on it. These disciples gave up jobs, yes, but also their honor status within the community. As mediocre as that generally would be, at least it was something. Every social strata, you know, had its own rankings, right? So, we, uh, we see the brothers coming to lay hands on him. Not the good laying of hands on him, okay? To lay hands on him and probably knock some sense into him. Take care of our mother and act like an honorable son. No more of this foolishness. You're just an artisan laborer's son. Stop attracting the attention of our betters. Yeah. They would absolutely see better educated people, wealthier people, powerful people as inherently superior. Blessed by God. That's how these honor-shame societies work. Uh, check out my curriculum book, Context for Kids, Volume 1, Honor and Shame in the Bible, if you want to learn more. And most of the people who read it are actually adults from what I hear. <laughs> but let's quickly review last week's section before moving on. I'm not going to teach it again, but I want you to see the accusation from the scribes and how Yeshua handles that before looking at how he handles the drama with his own family. Starting in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out these demons. And he called them to him, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. As we talked about last week, you know, this was done in the presence of the crowds, the oklos. Honor challenges, where public accusations were made and countered for the sole purpose of making yourself look good by making the other guy look bad, like high school on the internet, you know, it, it had to be performed in front of an audience. The audience would decide who came out on top, and certainly up to this point, Yeshua has been coming out on top. You know, as we can see by the amazed and astonished following he has gathered around him, everyone who has challenged him has lost face. They've lost public standing, 
and he has gained it for himself. That's how it works. It really seems as though his family should be riding high. But as we saw in Matthew 19, and as we will see in Mark 6, presumably this has yet to happen, Nazareth is not accepting of his newfound fame. But as we also saw last week, if they had followed him, and if Nazareth had been declared a seduced city, they would have been in danger of being put to the sword and all their possessions under the ban. Of course, that wouldn't happen in the first century because they couldn't do that anymore. The Romans had full control, almost full control over um, over that kind of thing. Um, now, Nazareth had more to lose than anyone in following after this messianic claimant. But perhaps, as chapter 6 is a long way away, all his family has heard at this point are rumors, and they're rightfully alarmed. Up to this point, Yeshua's been acting like a normal guy, well, with a few exceptions. Um, if it had been otherwise, then Mark 6 would not present such a shocked reaction in the synagogue and there certainly would have been earlier inquiries. And apart from the claims of later heretical Gnostic Gospels, we see no evidence that Yeshua was working miracles, delivering, or healing anyone before the beginning of his public ministry. Or before his temptation. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside... They sent to him and called him. So his mothers and at least two of his brothers came. Although James, Jacob, and Judas, Jude, later become heavy hitters in the first century church, we never hear anything about his other two brothers. But they were standing outside. Unlike the four men, the paralytic, they could have entered if they wanted to. This crowd looked at Yeshua as having more honor than themselves and would have extended that honor completely to his family. They would have cleared a path and treated them with just as much deference as Yeshua. But his family stood outside and called for him to come outside too. And this is going to be a major theme in Yeshua's teachings beginning next week when we start with the parables. Inside, you know, people are flocking to him. He can't even eat because people want to be near him, to touch him, to eat with him, to be healed by him. But one... The scribes, uh, all, I mean, all but uh, the scribes who call him demon-possessed and his family who say he is existemi, psychologically deranged. To be existemi, although not as alarming to us as being demon-possessed, was actually just as serious in some ways. Although mental illness was often regarded by pagans as a sign of being touched by the gods, among Jews it was not. It was a curse. They obviously would have no understanding of chemical imbalances in the brain, and only recently, over the past 500 years, uh, had they even begun to see that the brain was actually responsible for thinking. And I mean, the Greeks finally figured that out 500 years before Messiah. But on a funny note, this is funny too. The Egyptian view of the brain was typical for the ancient world. They thought it was just skull wadding. And so they threw it out during the mummification process because they didn't think it was needed in the afterlife. So they instead saved the heart, which they believed was responsible for rational thought. So remember, 
The Bible isn't a science book, and it can't be a science book. God speaks to us where we are, and why does he do that? Because when we look at our scientific knowledge versus his, I'm a chemist. I have a degree in chemistry, I used to work in R&D, you know, ran a water lab. Well, I didn't run it. I, I was a sole employee of the water lab. Um, but I'm a chemist, I'm a, I'm a scientist, and I have some pretty advanced scientific knowledge. But what I know is tinker toys compared to what God knows. And if he wrote the Bible in scientific terms that he would understand, we wouldn't understand nothing. So he reaches out to us. I mean, that's wonderful. I'll be right back. Welcome back to this week's Character in Context. We are at the end of, uh, we've come to the end of Mark chapter 3, and this week we've, uh, we're discussing Yeshua's uh, family rejecting him um, at the same time as the uh, scribes from Jerusalem have um, come to reject him, and uh, his family actually insists crazy. They think he's out of his mind to be risking the family honor, uh, all sorts of things. And I was talking about mental illness. Um, in the ancient world and what they thought it was, the Greeks thought it was you'd been touched by the gods. They wouldn't lay a finger on you. That's why the, the garrison uh, demon-possessed man, um, he was just peacefully living out the tombs because they, I mean, they tried, but they weren't going to kill him because he, they would have thought he'd been touched by the gods. But, they didn't, you know, they didn't know about brain damage and chemical imbalances and everything. So everything was, like, really mysterious. But um, for the Jews, if a person was stricken in this way um, with mental illness, if he was thought to be deranged, it would reflect badly on his family. And actually, I ought to mention that this was true in some ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities as well, as at least as recently as 50 years ago. I don't know if this is true anymore. Great book. Holy Woman, The Road to Greatness of Rebetzin Chaya Sarah Kramer talks about the um, early kibbutz decades after World War II. Jewish families would take their brain damaged and mentally ill children and give them the Chaya Sarah so that their other children could still get married. They would literally pretend like this other child did not exist because no one wanted to marry into a family with quote-unquote issues. Now, times have changed drastically in the last century for sure, and, and thank God the stigma of mental illness has greatly decreased. Um, it's no longer as mysterious as it was or considered a curse from God within a growing number of cultures. So that's an honor-shame culture right there in uh, modern-day Israel. The family was stigmatized, stigmatized if there was a mental issue and if the, and the other children wouldn't uh, be able to find uh, husbands and wives. How tragic, right? It's a glimpse into what Yeshua's family was worried about. They didn't want to be him to be declared a deviant and them to be deviants by default. Now, I want you to remember that the family remains outside of their own free will. Verse 32, And a crowd was sitting around him. 
and they said to him your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you so the oklos is doing something different than normal they're sitting around him although they're preventing him from eating at least this isn't an unruly and desperate crowd trying to touch him this is a positive thing something has suddenly changed these normal everyday probably mostly faithful jews had just watched this miracle worker defeat in a verbal battle envoys who were probably sent by the supreme court of jerusalem the sanhedrin you really need to understand this envoys from jerusalem were listened to respected and obeyed there were penalties for refusal, and if you want to learn about them, then you can read a good commentary on Mishnah Tractate Sanhedrin. But because they were socially required to see envoys as their superiors, and worthy of the utmost respect, even though they were only legal retainers of the upper class and not upper class themselves, all that respect and their attention and their ears are now transferred over to Yeshua, now they will listen, and and so the narrative changes in the coming uh, chapters to away from Yeshua working miracles and being pressed to Yeshua actually being able to teach, and to us, you know, and to us being able to read about his teachings finally. Understanding honor and shame sociology is so important, or we miss what's going on, and we just inject our modern ideas into the text, which rarely works out well. It sometimes leads us to the opposite of the truth because their society was very much the opposite of ours. So the crowd informs him of the situation outside, okay? They undoubtedly expected him to go to his family. That's what all of them would have done. The closest relationships in the Near Eastern world were, one, the relationship between mother and son, because men always remained embedded in their father's family, and so the firstborn would be with his mother for the duration of his life. Um, two, brother and sister, as there's no competition there, or rivalries, but it was still lesser than the relationship between a man and his mother, because at some point the sister would leave and become embedded in her husband's family. And below those importance would be the relationship between brothers, between husband and wife, and between father and son. It had a lot to do with who you spent the most time with and under what conditions. Until coming of age, children rarely had any relations with their father. And by children, I mean males, because females never did. And then obviously the focus was on training up the son in the family business. Education was carried out by the mother and would vary depending on gender, unless they had access to, you know, outside resources. Boys learn from an early age to be fiercely protective of the women in the family because it was very easy to shame a family simply by disgracing one of the women. Note that I talk about this in depth in context for adult sexuality, social identity, and kinship relations in the Bible. Teaching sociology is my favorite thing, but I can't do anything in depth in 50 minutes. And a lot of stuff we struggle with in the Torah, especially, can more easily be explained once we understand these mindsets. Fathers and husbands were at home at mealtime and bedtime, and that's about it. Otherwise, they were either working or hanging out with other men. 
girls would barely even know their fathers by the time they were married off to another family. This is the family reality of biblical days and the frame of reference from which we must read all family interactions. This isn't Little House on the Prairie. So now Yeshua is going to do something utterly shocking. Verse 33. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? He didn't get up and go in response to that question. He didn't even exercise the prerogative of the firstborn in telling them to come to him. In fact, he's not acting even remotely logical here by their social standards, okay? Where nothing on this earth was more important or sacred than one's kinship group. Just the question alone sounded nuts to these people. And they couldn't even begin to imagine where he was going with this. Into the unthinkable, as it turned out. Verse 34, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And so if we think that only men were seated around, uh-uh. Peter's, mom was, Peter's mother-in-law was probably down there too. <laughs> Yeshua just blasted through one of the unassailable social norms of the ancient world. He had brought into question the importance of blood and kinship ties. There were voluntary groups in the ancient world, and then there were kinship groups. No one would place, would place a voluntary association as being on a higher plane of existence and significance than the kinship community that you were born or adopted into, and, and birth and adoption were considered equivalent and irrevocable. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Herodians are all examples of voluntary associations. I, people chose to be chose to um, be part of them. Although loyalty played a part in them, it was always a very distant second to your actual kinship clan. Although, as we can see from the infighting, these voluntary factions had become a huge problem. In the Hebrew scriptures, we see people organized by the father's house, or the clan, tribe, one of the thirteen, and nation. They were either Jews or one of the foreign nations. But, but, due to Greco-Roman influences, factions had popped up in the 300 years before the birth of Yeshua. Now, being a Pharisee now takes precedent over Nation. I like to think of it in terms of the book Animal Farm. All animals are created equal, but some animals are more equal than others. The factions were like that. Factions are always like that. So, all Jews are better than the pagan nations around us, but some of us are more Jewish than other Jews. And some Jews are only marginally better than heathens. That's, you know. That last bit, you know, I obviously wrote myself. But that's because uh, that's what the Qumran sect was often expressing in quite a few documents found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now let's repeat the verse again and explore it some more. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister 
and my mother. Make no mistake, instead of slamming factions as he did when speaking to the scribes in the teaching last week, when he was talking about divided kingdoms and houses and the ruin it had brought on the Jewish people, now he is announcing the creation of a brand new faction, a new kinship group based on who one is, on who is and is not accepting of him and allying themselves with him. I don't want you to think he's disowning his families. That's not happening at all. But they're moving toward disowning him and are thus providing him with an opportunity to set his own, set up his own alternative, fictive kinship group based on choice and not upon genetics. But what is a fictive kinship group? It's actually just what it sounds like. Fictive is a word related to the much better known fiction, which means an imaginary invention. We all know uh, all about fiction and nonfiction book. Fiction would be C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, whereas his memoirs and apologetic works um, would be nonfiction. Fictive is similar, and in this case, fictive kinship means kinship based on something actually other than actual literal family ties. It's a real family, but it's also fictional. Your church or synagogue family is an example of active or fictive kinship. You are bound together by choice and not because you were born into it. For example, in my own life, I have two brothers and no sisters, but in the fictive family that Yeshua created, based upon allegiance to him as Messiah and Savior, I have billions and, you know, trillions maybe over the course of the last 2,000 years. I may not know them. I may not even like them. But we are family because Yeshua says so. But more than all this, what did this declaration mean to the Oklos, the crowd? It meant that the honor they had given him over the Jerusalem envoys, he was now sharing with everyone who would choose to be in this fictive kinship group. In modern terms, he was owning them and not rejecting them. And not owning and like, maybe owning was the, because <laughs> that means something in video game culture. It's like, or, or when you're fighting, man, I own that guy. No, no, no. He was like, um, you know what I mean. Okay. And we have to view this in the same way. Although we may be shamed by people in the world in a very real and eternal sense, we are actually honored when we endure and we do not deny Yeshua. Despite the terrible kinds of persecution that many non-Western believers live with on a daily basis, when our um, brothers and sisters in the Eastern world endure imprisonment and torture, lose their job and sometimes their families, and sadly even their lives, without compromising the witness of Yeshua and their love, the loyalty toward them, that all counts as honor within the fictive family of God. I mean, certainly we aren't actual blood relatives of God, and Yeshua left behind no progeny. You know, thank goodness, or they probably would have been worshipped by converts accustomed to worshipping Caesar and his successors as God. But we don't need to be blood relatives, or even Jewish, to be members of the family of God, because Yeshua opened up the avenue of relationship through himself. In fact, he states that he is the way, the truth, and the life, 
and no man comes to the Father except through him. And it's because of this new kinship group determined not through genetics, but through allegiance. Salvation is about allegiance. That's why it is not of works. You can't just follow all the rules while thumbing your nose at actually allying yourself with God through his Messiah. They might make you a nicer person or not. Yeah, it's, it's actually amazing how evil some people can be while claiming to be quote-unquote Torah observant, which no one actually is. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, they would make make you nicer, you know, if someone's sincere about loving God and neighbor, but without allegiance, they're worth very little. They cannot save on their own. You get to be like Paul. He was a murderer, even though he kept the law flawlessly, according to the standards of the Pharisees. Oh, all right. I said I was going to talk about the cross and tie it back into all this because I haven't yet talked about family based on who is doing the will of the Father. A fictive kinship group describes the phenomenon where people claim family status with non-blood kin based upon some other agreed-upon criteria. And the best example might be the kinship between men who were part of the same platoon for the duration of the war. If you've ever seen Band of Brothers. Okay. I'm going to... Okay. Jeez Louise. Okay, I'm going to stop. Because now I'm going to cry thinking about Band of Brothers. Anyway, we should get this emotional about our family in Yeshua, really. Now, in this case, Yeshua claims that all who do the will of God are part of Yeshua's kinship group. So what then is the will of the Father in heaven? Sometimes we come up with easy, pat answers. I was wondering how to present the horrifying shame of the cross to younger people, because even Mel Gibson's The Passion portrays a very dignified Messiah on the cross, in terrible pain yet allowed to retain his dignity. He wasn't stripped fully naked. Um... You know, we we in the West like to focus on his suffering as though physical pain is the worst possible. And yet a teenager who cuts himself in order to avoid the pain inside testifies to the fact that physical pain is not the worst manifestation of agony. Crucifixion wasn't about physical pain. It was about stripping a man of his most precious commodity, his honor. Subjecting him to utter and complete ruination agony within and without, stripping him of every shred of dignity, and then allowing him to endure that shame as he died very slowly to the delight of the gathered crowds. There are things about crucifixion that no movie would ever dare portray. Our Savior was humiliated beyond our ability to comprehend, but we don't like looking at a shamed Savior. You know... We like to see him up there wronged, but still a picture of dignity. Yeah, he had to bear our shame and our humiliation, and our shame and humiliation, well-deserved, could not be dressed up in dignity. We don't want to really see what our shame looked like. Really, it doesn't look nearly as bad when the only pain being inflicted is portrayed as physical. People from honor-shame cultures understand this intrinsically. And, and are unwilling to dishonor Yeshua once they have tasted his salvation. 
They die, therefore, before denying him, whereas in the West, we often don't even want to face our family's approval if we, decide, if we choose to celebrate Passover and Sukkot instead of Easter and Christmas. John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. Why the mention of this? I always wondered. Mary had several other sons. She had men to take care of her. Why give her to John? Yeshua, as firstborn, could only hand his mother over to a family member. And why was John always referred to as the disciple Jesus loved? What do you say in today's lesson? For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And I understood there at the foot of the cross, you know, we learned the will of the Father. Look upon the full shame of the cross and never, ever, ever look away again. Never forget what our shame looks like. Never forget the sight of the man who bore it for us. We can't turn our heads away from the shame that he endured. Our shame. The full measure of it. In crucifixion, there was no dignity afforded to the victim. He was not even given the dignity of being clothed with it, even with a loincloth. And the flies and the birds probably didn't leave him alone. Flogging and crucifixion were designed to wear a man out so quickly that he wouldn't even retain control over his own bowels and bladder. We want a dignified Savior because it hurts too badly to look at the true measure and seriousness of our shameful sins. Over and over again through the scriptures, from front to back, we are told of that shame and the penalty of that shame. That shame had to be taken away by someone. And we can at least look at it. And once we do, we had better never think we can turn away or deny it. We were freed, absolutely, and we should rejoice, but we don't dare forget it. Yeshua said, take up your cross and follow me. To be crucified was the greatest shame imaginable, and we are commanded to own that shame as having been our own. And to live in such a way as to purposefully sh never shame him again. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, 4, it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted in the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, <coughs> excuse me, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. <coughs> we, cannot his, we cannot accept his suffering for our shame and then reduce him to shame again by denying him. If we deny Yeshua, we are saying that he rightly died as a criminal for the crime of claiming to be the Son of God. We are guilty of convicting the one who was shamed for our sake. We cannot hold him up to that shame and contempt again after that. Peter denied Yeshua before he went through that shame, but never afterward. 
Not one of them denied him or ran away afterward. Hebrews 9.27 tells us plainly that man is destined to die once. We cannot crucify our master again. People in honor-shame cultures understand this. They are willing to face death, even at the hands of their own families. Six times in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the foolishness of the cross and of the foolishness of the wisdom of God, as perceived by the world. To follow a shamed criminal in the first century world was a stumbling block for the Judeans, many of the Jerusalem elites, and foolishness to the Gentiles. In the end, as he was about to die, Yeshua hung there in full sight of the mockers and scoffers who watched crucifixions for the entertainment public spectacle that they were. And he hung there in front of his mother, brother, and sisters, naked, his genitalia swollen for the crowd to gawk at, his body distorted out of shape, covered in his own blood and feces. His mother Mary, John, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene were the only ones there. In the end, they did not despise the shame of the cross. They looked at that shame with both eyes opened. They did the will of the Father in heaven and never turned away. It is loyalty and not genetics that set them apart as his family. And in the end, that meant that Yeshua had only one brother to whom he could entrust his mother. But the resurrection was coming and there would be, thank God, many more family members coming. Ah, until next week. Have a wonderful, uh, wonderful week.